0: This communique said only that landing operations in Europe had begun. We're allowed now to release some more details on the action. In the first phase, before the landing, the weather was unfavorable. There were rain squalls and the channel was rough. But by each hour, the weather had changed for the better. And we're also able now to hand a bouquet to the men of the minesweepers who did a magnificent job in clearing the landing areas of thousands of mines under the noses of the German coastal batteries. The news of the invasion was originally broken by the Germans at half-past six this morning, half-past midnight Eastern wartime. There was no official word from London until three hours later. When the news did get around here, there was no dancing in the streets. Nobody blew his top, nor is anyone likely to until the outcome is finally assured. We now take you to a point on the English coast for the first eyewitness account
1: of the naval actions. Stanley Richardson reporting.
2: Scale military invasion operation in history.
1: My While we are awaiting London to reestablish contact with its remote point this morning, here are several late bulletins which have been received in New York headquarters of CBS World News. The Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force states that over 640 naval guns from 16 inch to 4 inch are bombarding the beaches and enemy strongpoints in support of the armies. Here's another report, but this one comes from the Germans. The enemy's trans ocean news agency says that Allied paratroopers now back to London area.
2: No low-flying fighters came over to strafe us with machine-gun fire. And no enemy vessels, not even one of their vaunted e-boats, came out to the attack. The officers and men with whom I rode wondered searchingly about this. They had been keyed up with some real German opposition, both from the air and the sea. Their trigger fingers were itching for a scrap. And they were a very disappointed lot at not getting it. If the Germans weren't just too timid to come out, The only other ready explanation that could be advanced was that they were too busily engaged in coping with the Allied air attacks made on their shore establishments as a prelude to the actual landing of troops. In the area we covered, we could see hundreds of bombers and fighters shuttling back and forth, dropping their bomb loads and returning to England for more explosives to blast the enemy. We could see the big two-engine American transport planes, also in the hundreds, returning to their bases in the United Kingdom after dropping their airborne troops in France. Yes, Jerry had a lot to keep him busy last night and early today, but as far as the naval phase of our activity was concerned, not a shot was exchanged with the enemy while I was on the scene. For well, that preliminary phase of the show, at any rate, it was all too incredibly easy. We left our patrol torpedo boat based in daylight to accompany the slower-moving, light-advanced guard of ships which had to pave the way for the actual landing. One of our missions was to protect the Allied minesweepers, which cleared a wide channel straight to the enemy shore while troop transports and supply ships. The long lines of ships of every description were discernible on the skyline. Literally miles of craft in even columns converging upon the area in the channel marked for the concentration point for the actual invasion. Huge transport, tank landing ships, smaller troop landing craft, tankers and supply vessels of every kind, plodded doggedly along under lowering skies and laboring over heavy seas. You people at home would have been thrilled to the bone to have seen all these American men, American ships, and American supplies sailing calmly into the action for which they had been prepared and trained for so many months. It was estimated that there were more than 4,000 ships of all kinds in the channel for this combined operation. By nightfall, we were nearing the French coast and our watch tightened. But nothing happened. Even when a full near moon appearing fitfully from behind the clouds gave our position away clearly to any enemy who may have been lying in wait for us. Then the fast and heavy combat ships moved up into position. All aligned themselves in the bombardment area to loose a hail of high explosives to protect the troops moving into the beaches on their landing craft the warships started laying their smoke screens preparatory to shooting their guns it was within only a few minutes of each hour of the long-awaited d-day and right there was where i got the biggest disappointment of my life we turned around and headed back at high speed for the english coast our PT squadron was under orders to return to base and refuel for another mission as soon as his first operation was completed. So I didn't even hear the bombardments begin. But I can tell you that if things are going as well now as they looked to be going at the time I left the scene, it won't be long before our trip, troops have a firm foothold. And now here is Merrill Muller at the advanced command post of the Allied forces. Hello, New
1: York. Hello, New 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 York. That's it. While we're waiting for contact with correspondent Merrill Muller at an allied ad- advance post, here are two late details which have been received. The German TransOcean News Agency says that allied paratroopers have been landing on the islands of Jersey and Guernsey, west of the Norman Normandy Peninsula. Another German report says that new Allied landings have been made on the Normandy Peninsula this afternoon, British time, with tanks going ashore in one area. Those are German reports, though, and should be taken as such. A dispatch from Supreme Headquarters, of the Allied Expeditionary Force, says that Allied troops have secured a beachhead and dug in, according to military circles in the area. It is not known presently how deep the penetrations are. We are awaiting for further contact with an American radio correspondent in London. So far this morning, we've heard from CBS correspondent Richard C. Hotlett, and then we heard from Stanley Richardson, an eyewitness report of the naval situation. In a moment, we hope to contact correspondent Merrill Muller at Allied Advanced Base. CBS correspondent William J. Dunn has just reported from Australia that first news of the invasion sent Australians and Americans alike to their radios. But so far, he says, there hasn't been any external excitement. The Australian radios, commercial and government owned, have been giving the right away to invasion news, and they've been broadcasting General Eisenhower's statements at regular intervals. Dunn reported that acting Prime Minister Francis Ford termed the invasion Dunkirk in reverse and called for nationwide prayers. The Paris radio says that the battle of the continent peninsula seems to be gaining depth. Well, the Germans came on the air with the first announcement of the invasion, but coming from enemy sources, this word was taken with some skepticism. And those who were still up and listening in at that time of night, it was 12.30 Eastern wartime then, merely heard the announcement and let it go. A half hour later, the Germans said the French coast around Le Havre was being bombarded violently. Almost an hour after that, at four minutes until 2 a.m. Eastern wartime, the German-controlled Calais radio came on the air with the statement, This is D-Day. At 2:30, allied spokesman from General Eisenhower's headquarters broadcast a warning to the occupied countries of Europe, a warning that a new phase of allied air offensive had begun, and ordered those people of the occupied countries to move 22 miles inland. Well, by this time there was a growing feeling that certainly something was cooking, although no one here could be sure that it was the invasion. On the assumption that this was the day, CBS remained in operation past its usually usual closing time. CBS reporter Bob Tropp was on the air at that time, giving a general description of the New York headquarters of CBS World News, and there was an increasing tension that big things were about to pop. At 3.29 a.m. Eastern Wartime, Berlin Radio said, the first center of gravity is Cannes, the big city at the base of the Normandy Peninsula. And then three minutes later, at 3.32, there came the official Allied announcement that Allied armies have started landing on the northern coast of France. Eight more minutes, and it was then announced that British General Sir Bernard Montgomery was in command of the assault army, an army comprised of Americans, British, and Canadians. So this was it. This was the invasion. The D-Day we've all been waiting for. Here's another late report. The British radio has just announced that two beachheads have been secured by the Allies in France. No details at the moment. Early reports from correspondents on the scene emphasize the completeness with which we hit the enemy shore, from the land, from the air, and the sea. Columbia's shortwave listening station is already recording a lot of German propaganda about the invasion. It's the same old tune, only louder. Believe it or not, German propagandists are saying we invaded Europe because we couldn't evade Moscow's orders any longer. The old Bolshevik managed again. Radio Berlin has already rung in one of its puppet dictators with a comment, he's strictly a minor dictator, dictator Tavlicic of Croatia, who carries the charming title of Plavnik. That means the in Croatia. Well, this morning we brought you early morning reports from correspondents in London, both CBS and other radio networks, reporting from London, reporting on the naval situation at sea, and a partial report from an Allied correspondent at an Allied Advanced Post. This program has come to you as a feature of CBS World News. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. CBS News Headquarters in New York, Bob Trout speaking. We're continuing our coverage of the invasion which started last night in northern France. Now, you just heard Alan Jackson tell you that the uh, BBC has said that Allied troops have set up bridgeheads at at least two points. This broadcast was recorded by Columbia Shortwave Listening Station in New York, and we now have an additional detail to add to uh, that report, and it is this. The uh, BBC also reports that the Allied formations are advancing inland. Uh, That's uh, the latest scrap of information that we have so far. We'll continue to give you the latest as it comes in. And now here in our news headquarters, once again, is Columbia's
3: military analyst, Major George Fielding Elliott. Perhaps the most important news that we have received since the all-important news that invasion had begun, this report from the British radio that two beachheads not Bridgehead, the Bridgehead is a river crossing, have been secured by the Allies in France. This is supported by the report just received that the Allies are penetrating inland and uh, by a report picked up from the Paris radio which says that the battle in the Cotentin Peninsula, that is the Normandy Peninsula, as it has been called in other broadcasts, where uh, the city of Cherbourg is, seems to be gaining depth. If we have in fact established two beachheads as the British radio has announced and as there is therefore every reason to believe we have made a successful landing. We have carried through the first phase of our operations successfully. We're established on the uh, European shore and are developing from those beachheads our operations inland against the enemy communications. We must expect the enemy to counterattack as soon as he has collected sufficient forces for the purpose. He has to wait until he knows where we're coming before he can do this. It may be some time, it may even be several days before enemy counterattacks develop in great force. So we may expect local counterattacks from local reserves. But the news that two beachheads have actually been established suggests that the opposition has not been very strong as Mr. Hotlett and other observers have suggested previously, and that the enemy is therefore adopting the elastic system of defense which holds the front line very lightly and holds the bulk of his forces back for counterattack purposes later on after he sees what our plans are. But thus far, with the establishment of these two beachheads, our plans are, or appear to be, developing successfully, and there is good reason to feel satisfaction over this news. Now, here again is Bob Trout.
1: That was Major George Fielding Elliott. If you've been with us for some hours now, you've been able to tell how the news is coming in, the news of the invasion which has at last begun. It comes in in uh, very short snatches, and here is the latest brief dispatch from Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force in Great Britain. More than 640 naval guns, ranging from 4 to 16 inches in size, are bombarding the beaches and enemy strongpoints in support of landing forces. Just... Uh, one-sentence dispatch, which comes from Supreme Headquarters, and that is the fashion in which the additional details are coming in. Uh, As you know, if you uh, have been with us most of the night, the uh, actual word that the invasion had begun came in communique number one, a very brief communique of one sentence only, which merely said, under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces supported by strong air forces began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. And then, since then, we've been getting these uh, brief dispatches. It's almost wrong to call them dispatches. They're just additional details. They're not communiques. There has been only one communique, but uh, the details have been coming out in these uh, brief sentences released from time to time by the Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Forces, the Supreme Headquarters being somewhere in Great Britain. From time to time also, we've been bringing you reports direct from London. We've heard our own correspondents. We've heard correspondents who have been broadcasting for the combined Allied radio networks, as part of the pool. The pool is an arrangement which, as you probably know by now, has been set up in order to cover the early stages of the invasion, and uh, in the pooling arrangement, nobody's copy is exclusive and everybody is able to use everybody else's. Here's a note on General Eisenhower, which came in a few moments ago, and it tells us that General Eisenhower spent last night from early evening until after dusk paying informal visits to United States paratroop units, which were due to make early morning landings in France. This is reported in the cable by correspondent Robert Barr, who accompanied the Supreme Commander during his 11th hour tour. General Eisenhower chatted with the paratroops who had their uh, faces blackened and they were loaded with equipment as they marched off to their aircraft. Later, General Eisenhower watched the takeoff of the first C-47s, loaded with the paratroops as they set off in the fading light Monday night to open the long-awaited second front. Earlier in the day, General Eisenhower paid an informal visit to a British infantry battalion, and he wished the British soldiers good luck as they boarded their landing craft and prepared to set out into the English Channel for D-Day and H-R. After the, uh, after the communique came through in the early hours last night, which we broadcast to you, as a matter of fact, it was broadcast direct from London, we got at that point a good many other broadcasts Direct from London, we're going to have a good many more in the hours to come and also in the days to come. Perhaps I can tell you briefly some of the things that happened during the night. Just a short list, really. General Eisenhower's uh, order of the day to the troops of the soldiers, the men of land, sea, and air forces, was read from London by Columbia's chief European correspondent, Edward R. Murrow. And then we switched back to London again, and General Eisenhower himself came to the microphone to deliver a message to the people of Europe. General Eisenhower's message to the people of Europe was followed by a speech in Norwegian by King Håkon of Norway that was translated into English by an, an anonymous speaker. Then came the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, Dr. Gibrandi, and he spoke in Dutch. His speech was translated into English. And then came the Prime Minister of Belgium, Monsieur Pirlo, who spoke in French, and his speech was translated into English. We also heard from our CBS correspondent, Richard C. Hotlett, who was in a marauder plane over the enemy coast during the early hours of the invasion and returned to Britain in time to broadcast to us directly only an hour or so after the first communique came in. We also heard during the course of the night a two-way radio conversation between Edward R. Murrow in London and Paul White, Columbia's director of news broadcasts here in New York. And we've heard a great many of these pooled broadcasts from Britain, that is the broadcasts which are available to the combined Allied radio networks. We've also heard from Washington from time to time, and we shall hear more broadcasts from Washington as the day goes on. We're expecting uh, another broadcast from London very shortly now. Later in the day, I might remind you, we expect to uh, bring you the speech of King George VI, who will speak from Great Britain. We heard that General Charles de Gaulle had arrived in London. General de Gaulle did not speak to the people of France... As the King of Norway spoke to the people of Norway, and the Prime Minister of the Netherlands spoke to the people of Holland, and the Prime Minister of Belgium spoke to the Belgians. However, we may uh, be able to bring you a broadcast, or at least a report of a broadcast, by General de Gaulle later in the day, as it seems likely that he will make some sort of broadcast or some sort of speech to the French people. He now is in London. As I was telling you a moment or two ago, we are expecting momentarily now to bring you Another one of those broadcasts from London. I should think it would be a pool broadcast, but we should have the information in just a few moments. And now I understand that it will be a pool broadcast available to the Combined Allied Radio Networks, a broadcast by Stanley Richardson and Merrill Muller. Go ahead, London. One second.
2: Five seconds,
1: We now take you to a point on the English coast for the first eyewitness of the naval action. It is by Stanley Richardson.
3: We are having slight technical
1: difficulties. We will try it again. Hello, New York. We are encountering slight technical difficulties. We will hope to go ahead in just a moment or two We've been listening to the voice of Edward R. Murrow. You've been hearing it, too, as Mr. Murrow attempts to establish contact with two correspondents who are on the coast of England. In a moment or two, Mr. Murrow hopes to establish contact with them, and when he does make the contact from London to the coast, then we shall bring you the broadcast. It's it's impossible to tell how long it will take to get the coast, and perhaps he may not be able to get the coast at all. As a matter of fact, this particular broadcast... Uh, We had made an attempt to bring you this particular broadcast at an earlier time, and at that time there was some difficulty encountered. Apparently the difficulty is somewhere on the lines, or somewhere between the coast of England and uh, the Supreme Headquarters in Great Britain. At any rate, Mr. Merrill now informs us that he's unable at this time to establish contact with the two pool correspondents who are on the coast. He'll undoubtedly make another try, and when he does, if he is successful, of course... We will bring you the broadcast. And now here's a late dispatch. Just come in. In London, we hear life goes on as if the greatest day in all our history has been taken in our stride. The people went to work in a normal way. The road menders got on with the job of repairing the streetcar tracks, tramcar tracks, they'd call them. The milkman delivered the milk in his usual British stolid manner, nothing excitable in his good morning. And the housewives, as they formed their queues for fish, talked in normal tones of how they'd been kept awake by the roar of Allied planes, which during the night gave France its biggest and heaviest installment of the Allies' softening up campaign. And now, oh yes, I've just been handed another sentence, you've already heard this one, but it's the very latest news of the battle that we have had, so I'll give it to you again. The British Broadcasting Corporation says that two beachheads have been secured by the Allies in France. I'd given you that once before, but that's the very latest detail that has come in. It's from the BBC, and it was heard here in New York by Columbia shortwave listening station. During the broadcast, which began many hours ago, shortly after midnight New York time, we switched to Washington several times to uh, bring you various aspects of the reaction in our nation's capital. And now we're going to give you some press comment, which will undoubtedly be interrupted before we get very far with it, by a broadcast from London. I shouldn't really call it an interruption because, of course, we're very glad indeed to have uh, our press comment or anything in New York interrupted by a broadcast from London bringing you the latest news. So I just have been told uh, that uh, we'll try London again in about one minute from now. So. I, uh, I, I shan't try to get into the press comment. There'll be plenty of time for that later on. I was going to give you some of the editorial comment from the big New York newspapers, which are now on the streets, but later we shall have that. There'll be time after the broadcast from London. Another late bulletin, the latest one, from London, United Press. More than 1,300 Royal Air Force heavy bombers struck the mightiest blow of the war at the chain of German batteries along the northern coast of France last night and early today just before the allied invasion that's the very latest from london these details are coming in so quickly the only thing to do is to listen to them and try to add them all up because uh, each detail may concern something entirely different this one concerns last night's attack by the royal air force more than 1300 heavy bombers struck the mightiest blow of the war at the chain of german batteries and now go ahead london This is London. again we shall attempt to take you to a point on the english coast for the first eyewitness of the naval action it is by Stanley Richardson.
4: CBS News headquarters in New York. We're still trying to get that broadcast from London. Uh, that is, we get Edward R. Murrow in London, but Mr. Morrow is still having difficulty making the contact with the correspondent or correspondents who are apparently somewhere on the coast of England. They either have a view of what's going on down there, or perhaps they have returned from uh, perhaps from covering the uh, naval activity. Perhaps they've actually gone out in one of the ships and are now back to give their story. However, once again, Mr. Morrow informs us that at this time he is not able to make contact. He will be trying again. He's tried several times already this morning to get this broadcast through. He will be trying again, and when he notifies us that he's ready to try it again and thinks that he might get through to the pooled correspondents who are somewhere on the coast, we shall again, at that point, switch you to London, and we'll try to bring the broadcast in again. Now, uh, that press comment that I was talking about a few moments ago, I think we may have an opportunity to get that in and to learn a little bit about the reaction so far at this early hour of the morning here in the United States. And so
5: for the press reaction, here is Alan Jackson. Here is what the New York Times has to say on D-Day. At last, says the Times, the supreme moment has come. The months and years of waiting are over. The men who left Dunkirk four years ago are returning. They are returning as part of a great force commanded by generals of proven worth. They are meeting and will meet terrible obstacles. And the next few hours and days will be critical in our history and in all human history. We must wait in patience for news that may be slow in coming. Today concludes the Times. We can only pray that the ones we love be spared. But we must pray, too, for the knowledge and skill to create out of this slaughter a just and lasting peace. That was from the New York Times. Here's what the New York Herald Tribune has to say on invasion morning. The moment is too solemn, says the Tribune, for idle excitement. The issues are too great to be quickly or easily decided. The battle now joined may last for days or weeks or months. The tide of battle may shift in one direction or another. The costs may be heavy. One can only await the event in calm and with prayer. However, the immediate fortunes may go. On the grim beachhead, battle lines, civilization stands at crisis. That's the editorial comment this morning from the New York Herald Tribune. Around the country, D-Day has arrived on an America that is prepared for heavy fights and tough sacrifices ahead. Michigan's Governor Kelly has issued a proclamation setting 10 a.m. this morning, Eastern Wartime, for a statewide observance of D-Day for that state. Sirens and whistles will sound the hour, and all citizens will pause for a moment of prayer. In Ohio, there are no spontaneous celebrations, but early this morning, and even now, thousands of citizens are going to church to offer up prayers before going to their jobs. Governor Bricker says the invasion marks the beginning of the end of the forces of evil and destruction. Herbert Hoover says, the end of German tyranny is on the way. We have faith in our army... We pray for the safety of all our courageous boys. Every city, town, and hamlet in the country will mark the day in some special way. The first announcement of the invasion early this morning found most of the streets and gathering centers comparatively deserted. In New York, a city which seldom rolls up its sidewalks, there were no demonstrations. Groups of servicemen and civilians gathered here and there about the town, around taxi cabs, and listened to radio reports of the big event. In several sections of the city... Apartment lights blinked on one after another as friend told friend and called one another on the phone to break the big news. War workers received the momentous announcement on all night graveyard shifts. At a Bendix plant in Brooklyn, 500 swing shift workers gave a spontaneous cheer when the news was received. But then the workers remained at their jobs and not a second was lost. A scene probably typical of that in many public places was enacted at a restaurant on the east side of New York. About 20 diners rose and listened with bowed head as the first reports of the invasion came in by radio. New York's Mayor LaGuardia has announced plans for a mass prayer meeting at 5.30 this afternoon. The meeting will be held in Madison Square where the eternal light, a memorial for soldiers of the last war, burns continually. Most of the churches throughout New York, as well as in all other towns and cities, will have special services. And now, back to Bob Trout.
4: That was Alan Jackson, who was giving us Uh, The reaction here in the United States to the news of the invasion, Mm -hmm. it's rather early in the morning still to get too much reaction. That was uh, a good deal of reaction, but uh, undoubtedly, I just want to take this opportunity to remind you that, undoubtedly, our audience is growing constantly as people uh, may tune in who have not heard about the invasion before or who have not heard the details. And now, once again, I'm uh, about to be informed that in a few seconds, we're going to hear from London. Go ahead, London.
6: Stanley Richardson.
7: This is the advanced alliance command folks. American war correspondent, Stanley Richardson, has just returned from the second front beachhead with the first naval eyewitness of the operation. Mr. Richardson, I've just returned from the channel approaches to the coast of France where I was privileged to watch the opening phases of the largest scale military invasion operation in history. My ringside seat was the heaving deck of a United States Naval Patrol torpedo boat on which I traveled across the channel with the first contingent of a naval task force. This force was composed mostly of American units. From the time we left the British coast until we were within a short two or three miles of the French shore, our naval units encountered no enemy opposition whatsoever. That, perhaps, is the outstanding fact that I brought back with me. Altogether, My squadron of PT boats was in the channel for about 20 hours. We covered scores of square miles of rolling choppy sea. We were patrolling and acting as escort for literally hundreds of slower moving vessels of all description. Many of them had been at sea longer than we had, but the Germans either were taken completely by surprise or just were afraid to come out and challenge us. Not a recognizable enemy plane appeared over here. At least, no bombs were dropped at or on any of the ships in our area. No low-flying fighters came over to strafe us with machine gun fire. And no enemy vessel, not even one of their vaunted e-boats, came out to the attack. The officers and men with whom I rode wondered searchingly about this. They had been keyed up for some real German opposition, both from the air and the sea their trigger fingers were itching for a scrap, and they were a very disappointed lot at not getting it. If the Germans weren't just too timid to come out, the only other ready explanation that could be advanced was that they were too busily engaged in coping with the Allied air attacks made on their shore establishment as a prelude to the actual landing of troops. In the area we covered, we could see hundreds of bombers and fighters shuttling back and forth, dropping their bomb loads and returning to England for more explosives to blast the enemy. And we could see the big two-engined American transport planes, also in the hundreds, returning to their bases in the United Kingdom after dropping their airborne troops in France. Yes, Jerry had a lot to keep him busy last night and early today, but as far as the naval phase of our activity was concerned, not a shot was exchanged with the enemy while I was on the scene. For that preliminary phase of the show, at any rate, it was all too incredibly easy. We left our patrol torpedo boat based in daylight to accompany the slower-moving light advance guard of ships, which had to pave the way for the actual landing. One of our missions was to protect the Allied minesweepers. Which cleared a wide channel straight to the enemy shore, while troop transports and supply ships. Long lines of ships of every description were discernible on the skyline. Literally miles of craft in even column, converging upon the area in the channel marked for the concentration point for the actual invasion. Huge transports, tank landing ships smaller troop landing craft, tankers and supply vessels of every kind, plodded doggedly along under lowering skies and laboring over heavy seas. You people at home would have been thrilled to the bone to have seen all these American men, American ships, and American supplies sailing calmly into the action for which they had been prepared and trained for so many months. It was estimated that there were more than 4,000 ships of all kinds in the channel for this combined operation. By nightfall, we were nearing the French coast and our watch tightened. But nothing happened. Even when a full near moon appearing fitfully from behind the clouds gave our position away clearly to any enemy who have, may have been lying in wait for us. Then the fast and heavy combat ships moved up into position. All aligned themselves in the bombardment area to loose a hail of high explosives to protect the troops moving into the beaches on their landing craft. The warships started laying their smoke screen, preparatory to shooting their guns. It was within only a few minutes of H hour of the long-awaited D-Day, and right there was where I got the biggest disappointment of my life. We turned around and headed back at high speed for the English coast. Our PT squadron was under orders to return to base and refuel for another mission as soon as its first operation was completed. So I didn't even hear the bombardment begin. But I can tell you that if things are going as well now as they look to be going at the time I left the scene, it won't be long before our troops have a firm foothold. And now here is Merrill Muller at the advanced command post of the Allied forces. This is Merrill Muller reporting from the Advanced Allied Command post of the invasion forces. Operations toward the liberation of Europe commenced just a few hours ago. Thousands of ships both in the air and on the sea and armies of men are in motion fighting the greatest military amphibious undertaking in history. The whole thing started moving when one man pressed a theoretical button some hours ago. That man was the Supreme Allied Commander, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, who thinks of himself modestly as a Kansas farmer. Every evening, General Eisenhower gathered his staff around him in this secret headquarters, studied their faces, and asked their opinions. A gale had already roughened the channel, but the staff was confident on the winds, tide, and weather of today, suiting an amphibious assault upon Europe. <laughs> that was it. General Eisenhower wished his commander's luck And the great undertaking, then and there, began to unfold. The finest collection of military minds in the United Nations had created a plan they considered complete. Every possible contingency had been thought of. A tremendous mass of the greatest military equipment ever devised had been pooled by the Allied attacking forces. A bombardment, the likes of which the world has never seen, was ready to open. Everything that could humanly be done had been done, up to the point when General Ike pushed the button. The campaign thus passed to the direction of God and the hands of the common soldier. Early Monday morning, as the huge invasion force made last-minute preparations, General Eisenhower checked his decision again with his staff. The word was still, go. Good weather was the prediction for H-hour D-Day. The dominating air support depends on good weather even more than the Allied Navy. While landing craft of all types swung in and out of convoys to check their loadings and replace used fuel, General Eisenhower was busy doing the things he wanted to do, the only things he could do, visit his troops. As H.R. D. Day approaches, there is nothing more tactically useless than a supreme commander, except as an inspiration. General Ike is certainly that. I have never seen him more popular with his troops. I have never seen any commander receive greater acclaim or buoy his men more than does General Eisenhower. One British battalion cheered him as they clanked aboard their fast landing barge. He waved a friendly hello, and that broad grin lit up his face, a face that showed nothing but confidence in his men, a face in which fatigue is miraculously erased whenever it mirrors the allied esprit de corps and the fighting spirit of the little men with rifle and bayonet he came back from the port full of a sense of victory no finer force ever went into battle with a better spirit or with greater courage than this one that general eisenhower had in visiting with royal and american navy landing craft and with the allied troops they will carry the general had been given a lift some of his own nervous tension had been relieved so he arrived at our hidden camp to meet the four correspondents attached to his staff if i never attend another press conference in my life I shall certainly remember this one. Perhaps because its outstanding factor was that it was more like a staff conference than a general talk to newspaper men. Here's the picture. Remember that all around us, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of men were readying themselves for the outbreak of the battle that all the world had waited for for four long, dark years. Men from the far corners of the world ready to erase the stain of Dunkirk to lift the shrouds of Nazi tyranny, to crush the Axis in the growth of the United Nations. Aeroplanes growled overhead, ships were gathering and steaming off into the channel, and final road convoys rumbled into the embarkation areas. We all sprawled around the General's private field office and were given the picture. In a tiny tent, some 15 feet square, we sat and listened to the most amazing delivery of dynamic facts I have ever heard. We overcrowded and spilled half out of the tent onto its backyard concrete terrace. It is a modest office. The inner wall of the tent is half lined from the ground up with slats from packing cases. And some ingenious sergeant has stained those slats into imitation pine paneling. The floor is concrete with a couple of rope rugs. There's one desk, a telephone, two chairs, and a moderate wall map. Otherwise, the tent show is a tree-shaded terrace and three pieces of deck chair furniture. You have to tear your eyes from the general to note these things because he holds your interest completely. When you appreciate his tremendous command of facts and figures, duplicated, I think, only by General Marshall, you understand why he was picked for this assignment. It is not opportune to release the details of our briefing on behalf of the general except in three general ways. One, he wanted all the credit for this campaign to go to the common soldiers of the Allied Army and he emphasized the lower ranks and the word allied. His order of the day takes that vein. Two, he had nothing but praise for the untiring efforts and inexhaustible research of his various staff and his various commanders for air, sea, armies, and supplies. Three, as to the actual plan itself, perhaps I can best put it this way. I have been in on all of General Eisenhower's amphibious assaults, but none was as involved or as mammoth as this one last minute headaches yes the general had a last minute headache and he expressed it beautifully when he suddenly jumped from his chair and said good heavens there's some sunshine otherwise the invasion of europe had already been pat for days we came out of the tent and strolled toward his proudest newest possession just the general and myself he praised his new mobile office, a super deluxe job built into a 10-ton truck and trailer, and presented to him by the Lockheed workers here. And then I asked him about his own nerves. He stopped hatless in the sun. He is supposed to be phlegmatic. But he said quietly, I'm so gall nervous I boil over. He's not supposed to show it. He didn't either. I caught him only twice, wringing his hands or jiggling his English change but I like reporting that he is human enough to feel what the lowliest of his troops feel. We went to a parachute of space just before their takeoff for France. For this invasion, the General honors his vast airborne forces that are now employed in battle. We went from airfield to airfield, talking to the airborne troops and to the Air Force crews that flew them to their targets. The General's car would roll up and always the procedure was the same. The men would snap to attention, sneaking a final chew on their gum as they did so. Their faces were smeared with cocoa and linseed oil. It gave a Halloween twist to their grins. When the General ordered them to stand easy, he would move among them. Where are you from, General Ike would ask one boy. What did you do in civilian life? How old are you? Are you a good shot with that rifle? What do you weigh? Who's the toughest man in the battalion? And so it went down the line. And invariably, off in another corner of the field, the men would start shouting for Ike. Yes, just Ike. And over he'd go repeating the questions all over again, verbally sparring with them, giving them the impression that this general was just one of the guys who thought they were the best soldiers in the world. One boy said he was an expert rifleman. Good, said the general. That's what will win for you tonight. From one quick witted youngster, the general was told that the toughest man in the battalion would be selected after they jumped in France. Good, said the general. Send him back to me, and I'll have something for him. But the visit was brief the yell went down the line to load plane one, and the men started trooping off. General Ike yelled good luck and saluted them time after time. This outfit had been assigned the toughest mission of all. They knew it, and the General knew it, and both are part of a winning team. Soon, hundreds of planes were circling overhead in the gathering gloom, their warm yellow lights making them look like pure horizontal Christmas trees rushing into the night. They took formation and disappeared toward the channel, extinguishing their lights to make their approach... The, 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 ...the first wave to strike on the second front. His face raised to their thundering black shapes. General now, watch the planes disappear toward France. Nothing to do now but sweat it out back at the camp. Try to read a cheap murder mystery or a wild westerner. Refrain from calling any of the commanders for news. Just hang on and wait. A stroll down the path with slippers and robe and another cigarette. A pause to hear the faint passage of a fleet of bombers. A game of checkers with general Me with Commander Butcher. Will the night never end? pragmatic? But when his men have left him behind, he's with them always just the same. The battle has been going. Until his men appeal to him for his renewed assistance, as the campaign takes more definite shape from its fluid beachhead, the general will take his chance and wait. Once he gets the call, the Supreme Commander-in-Chief... General Dwight D. Eisenhower will step in beside his allied troops with their needs and as
4: their inspiration. we return you now to the United States. CBS headquarters in New York once again. We've been listening to a broadcast from London, another pool broadcast which uh, was put on for the benefit of the combined allied radio networks. We heard Edward R. Murrow who was speaking from the Supreme Headquarters and who finally established contact with the two correspondents who are somewhere else in Great Britain. We heard correspondent Stanley Richardson give us the first eyewitness account of the naval action in the invasion which started last night. And then we heard Merrill Muller speaking from advanced Allied headquarters describing General Eisenhower's actions on invasion eve. And now here at Columbia's news headquarters, sitting next to me at this desk, is our war correspondent, Quentin Reynolds, who is going to speak to us now on how the lessons we learned at Dieppe are helping the invasion forces today. Here's Quentin Reynolds.
6: Up to now, our Allied headquarters has not told us exactly where or in how many places our invasion forces landed during the night. The German radio has told us that the main field of operations is the Bay de la Seine, Roughly the area stretching from Le Havre to Cherbourg. However, in his talk to the House of Commons this morning, Prime Minister Ch there seems to be no doubt that our forces struck boldly at the very heart of the German defenses, the best defended part of the French coast. If the conventional pattern of military tactics is followed, we will, or already have, land on the flanks of this main operational area. Dieppe is on the southwest flank, only about 50 miles from the southern extreme of our landing area. It is only fitting that we make one of the landings on the beaches in front of Dieppe. Those of us who paid another visit to Dieppe in August 1942 are hoping that our troops will make Dieppe a target. We have a lot of unfinished business there. And our troops will get a lot of help there on the, on the beaches at Dieppe. Two years ago, we left some 3,500 Canadians at Dieppe. Many were made prisoners. Many more died there on the black shale beaches. They were buried where they fell, many of them. And if the ancient words of the army song are correct, we know that old soldiers never die. It is not too fantastic to assume that the spirits of those Canadian dead have been waiting patiently for this hour. It has been a long wait for them, but the revenge will be sweet. Now at last, those who died at Dieppe will know that their lives were not wasted. The main object of the Dieppe raid was to test out the German defenses, to find out as much as we could about them. We accomplished that object. Without that dress rehearsal, this big show might have been impossible. We learned many lessons at Dieppe. We depended then entirely upon the element of surprise. We did no preliminary bombing. We used no airborne troops. Reports from France during the night and early morning tell us that there was not only a strong preliminary air bombing of the French coast, but a terrific naval artillery barrage as well. Dieppe taught us that we needed this bombardment before we could land with a maximum of safety. At Dieppe, we used no airborne troops at all, and German reserves hurried up unopposed. Last night, thousands of airborne troops were landed and dropped inland. Dieppe taught us that we needed airborne troops to cut off enemy roads, to demolish enemy blockhouses, to disorganize German reserves. At Dieppe, we landed on what was roughly a five-mile beach area. The whole Luftwaffe came at us, concentrating its strength in that small area. Dieppe taught us that this was a reckless method of landing, that only by spreading out over a period of miles and striking in several places simultaneously could we split the Luftwaffe up into several smaller units, which could be handled easily by our Air Force fighters. There are those who still say that Dieppe was a failure. If you think of Dieppe in terms of lives that were saved during the past seven hours, Dieppe was not a failure. It was a glorious success. Every lesson that our military commanders learned at Dieppe was utilized during the long hours of last night. The lives of those men who fell at Dieppe were not wasted. And today the ghosts of those who fell there hover proudly over the French coast, satisfied that finally they have come into their own. They know now, and the world knows, that their sacrifice was not in vain. And being soldiers, they are content. I return you now to Bob Trout. That was Quentin Reynolds here at Columbia's news headquarters in New
4: York discussing the landing at Dieppe and telling us how the lessons which were learned at Dieppe are helping the invasion forces who are now on the northern coast of France. Uh, The latest dispatch we have from London says this. This afternoon, London time, German coastal artillery in France opened up with salvos across the channel. That was soon after noon today, and the salvos shook towns in southeast England. I suppose it's no longer a military secret that when those German channel guns open, usually there's been some sort of convoy or some ships going around in the vicinity which they're trying to get. The British Broadcasting Corporation, as heard here in New York by Columbia's shortwave listening station a few moments ago, has quoted the French radio at Algiers as saying that Allied troops in Italy have taken the important road junction of Tivoli, a town which lies east of Rome and which makes... Even more interesting, this dispatch we have from Moscow from Ilya Ehrenberg, a very brief dispatch, which is considered to be a new hint that Russian forces are getting ready to move toward Germany. The hint is given by Ilya Ehrenberg, the famous Soviet correspondent in the Russian newspaper Pravda. And this is what he says, There's an old saying that all roads lead to Rome. Today, we'll say, all roads lead to Berlin. The Germans don't know by which route the Allied armies will start moving. There are many routes, but they all lead to Berlin. That's what Ilya Ehrenberg, the famous Russian correspondent, said today in the Moscow newspaper Pravda. Another brief and late dispatch just handed me, just in from London. It says that casualties among Allied airborne troops on France have been light. And this was announced by Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Forces, Schaef, announced today. There's been only one communique, but a great many details are coming out in very uh, small quantities from the Supreme Headquarters in Great Britain, and undoubtedly those details will continue to flow, and as they do, we will give them to you. Just a moment to pause now to tell you a little bit about what we're going to do. In approximately a minute, we're going to pause for a 30-second station break identification, and then uh, at 9 o'clock, Eastern wartime, we shall continue with the news. And, of course, Colombia is going to continue its invasion coverage as long as the news is coming in. There's a great deal of news yet to come, and we'll give it to you as it comes. I wonder if I have time to tell you that Prime Minister Churchill spoke in Commons this morning and gave us the first official word since the communique announcing the landings. He said all is going according to plan, and what a plan, he said. And then Mr. Churchill described the operation as the most complicated and difficult ever undertaken. He warned that in the weeks to come, the battle will grow in scale and intensity. And then he disclosed that we have at least 11,000 first-line planes ready to support our ground advances in France. Then the Prime Minister predicted that in finishing off the enemy, we'll come up with a number of surprises. And now this is Bob Trout at Columbia's news headquarters in New York telling you that we are pausing 30 seconds